The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? I think it's going pretty well. It is episode 26 of the Cinematography Podcast, and we've got a great show. 20 freaking six. 26. So, actually, I can talk about who's on the show this week. It is Qian Tran, also known as Q. She is an amazing cinematographer, most recently of Camping, which is a new series on HBO starring Jennifer Garner. Nice. It's good to see Jennifer Garner back on TV. Yeah, she, uh, Q's awesome. Uh, she's she has a lot a lot of really cool uh, information. She and I kind of got a little bit in the weeds because right around the time that we did the interview, I think that was right after my son was born, and she and I kind of got to talking about how to balance business and family because she has kids as well. Nice. And here she is, Q Yan Tran. <laughs> The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Quian Tran, thank you so much for coming on to the Cinematography Podcast and uh, our interesting setup, which is, uh, for those of us who can't see us, we're in separate places on good microphones. Thank Thank you you for for having me. (laughs) So I always start uh, by asking kind of a simple question that, that kind of sparks a conversation. And the question is, I have a belief that cinematographers, they look at a script and they either think about... Uh, composition first or lighting first and before I even really ask you about your background and I know you have a still photography background when you read a script you've never read it before what what occurs to you as you're reading the script well you might think that's a simple question but (laughs) it's actually very complicated and it's meant to be complicated (laughs) for me the first time I read a script, I really try not to think about lighting or composition or anything. I really just pay attention to the story. And I try to figure out all the narrative beats, all the emotional beats, and f- just really grasp the characters and, and see if I connect with them. Because if I don't connect to a script, I don't think I'm going to bring it justice by shooting it. So for me, when I do an in- initial pass on a script, I want to make sure that I can connect to the story empathize with the characters and just really understand what the writer or director or writer director is going for. And I, I don't, I try not to visualize stuff because I could be really off the mark with it. And I definitely don't think about lighting uh, unless it specifically says in the script, like night interior car, for example. Yeah. To, to me, like the, the big question that I, that, that every question I have kind of circles around is how do you read the script and then turn that into uh, pictures? Like, how do you, how, What's your process for doing that? If I have an idea of where the script's going to be shot, whether it's in L.A. or Georgia or Italy, I will come up with locations in my mind. But I, I, I'm, it's not like I work hard to think about, okay, I'm going to shoot this in a master and then I'm going to go in and do it moving master and mm-hmm. et cetera. But what I really am looking for is what is the scene about? Is this about the moment where a character is really coming to an important decision in his or her life. And so I want to do some kind of close-up at that point, or I want to isolate them or make them feel really claustrophobic with a long lens or what have you. But when I 
am reading a script, I will think about these moments and these emotions and respond to those visually. So let's say, and that can be contributed with lighting and composition and lenses and focal lengths and all that. Um, so when I read a script, uh, I'll think, okay, how can I really add to this emotion with lighting? Should I put some hard light on the character, make them appear in silhouette or really, you know, backlight them. It just depends on the emotion of the scene. And I try to augment that emotion with my lighting and my compositions. So it's not like a specific composition or place in time. It's more like a feeling. Do you have, uh, are, th are there any techniques or is it mostly intuitive in terms of how, when you're looking at a script, you start breaking it down and, and thinking about it. So like, let's say you're already hired to shoot a movie or a TV show and you're given the script and, you, and you're looking at it, like, do you take a lot of notes? Do you look at a lot of reference? Do you, is it, is it more of an intuitive thing for you? Like, what's the process? Are you talking about like after I've gotten a job with the director or when I'm going in for an interview? You know, actually you, we could discuss both. Like yeah. if you're, if you're going in to pitch somebody on a job, how different would that be? Very, very different because when you go in for an initial meeting, you don't, it depends. Like I'll ask the producers or whoever's asking me to come in for the interview, you know, do they want me to come in with a lookbook? Uh, yeah. I'll try to get like an initial vibe and work around that. Let's say on my last interview for the job that I'm, I'm currently prepping, they wanted the DP to come in with a lot of ideas because they didn't really have a clear vision of what they wanted. They wanted to see what the DP could bring to the table. Interesting. And so I came up with a whole lookbook. I, you know, came up with very specific moves for very specific scenes and shotless almost. And, th and that that's something I wouldn't typically do on an initial meeting. But because I asked and because they're like, we want, we really want you because we know you have strong ideas. And so we want you to bring that to the initial interview. But let's say for another job, the director already sent me a lookbook with the script so yeah. i'm basically going off of what the director sent as opposed to coming up with all new visuals and all new ideas and so you kind of have to riff off of that because you don't want to we're really directors of photography are really there to serve the director's vision and it's a collaboration but at the same time you don't want to just take over and direct the film and i think early on in my career those lines were like a little more blurred because we're all trying to <laughs> <laughs> war story um <laughs> you know those lines are blurred and so you don't really know where you're overstepping your bounds and yeah, yeah. Where, where your ideas are welcome or not well and, and i mean different directors are going to come like somebody who's more actor facing might mm -hmm. might need you to come in and and give them ideas for how to shoot the scene um, exactly. you know and somebody who's got a background in camera might already have diagrams of what they want or something and you have to fit into that. But I'm, I'm always wondering like where, where do, where do cinematographers get, where is their creativity most focused and, and where do you find yours most focused? I think the perfect collaboration is a director who really wants to focus on the actors and has an idea of the overarching look, but will allow you to do your job Yeah, and, and coll really collaborate. Like I love when directors really know what they want, but also let me do my job in terms of lighting 
and taking the time where I feel lighting, you know, the extra 20 minutes will really contribute to the scene and then we can move in quickly for close-ups. But it really, it's it's different with each director, but the strongest collaborations are are those. They're collaborations. You know, the director of photography is a director of photography. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we direct the visuals and we direct the lighting and, and we, we work with the director to to help the actors block the scenes organically and work within the space and the confines of the of the medium of filmmaking. So it just depends with each director. But I think the best ones are where you really sit down and you like work out the blocking and the lighting. Oh, what if we did this? Oh, yeah, you're, you're bouncing ideas off each other and you're really elevating the scene by working yeah, together. Yeah. No, that's uh, so. Uh, so let's go back and talk a little bit about your uh, your background. You, you began in still photography, correct? That's right. And I worked you, as a photojournalist, stills photographer, and I, I did that to inform my painting, but then I kind of abandoned painting and, and did phot- photography full-time. Oh, really? So did you begin as a painter first? I've always been into the visual arts. I used to draw and, and, and paint and write poetry, you know, everything that it, a, a teenager is going to do to like get through those teenage years, you know, write poetry, sketch, etc. So, you know, black nail polish, purple hair. I mean, I have blue hair now, but you know, 20 years later, but anyway, um, you know, I think, I think art is a, a form of escapism and we all need to express ourselves somehow. And I just never went beyond those teenage years and I'm still <laughs> trying to, you know, paint with a different canvas with with filmmaking now and it's much more collaborative in stills photography and in painting it's it's very solo and it's it's a little bit lonely and what I love about filmmaking is the collaborations with so many different departments I love working with the production designer and designing the you know the palettes and the, the colors and the practical lighting and I love working with my gaffer and my key grips and, and coming up with different rigs to support the vision. It's so yeah. great. I love all the departments coming together because we are nothing without our crews and without our collaborators. And that's what I love about filmmaking versus stills photography. Yeah, yeah. No, that that makes uh, sense. And I and if if there isn't anything here, just tell me. But I'm just curious, like, how long did you work? As, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that you started as a visual artist, as a painter. Uh, or was painting just one of many things you were doing and you weren't like really focused on it, but it sounded like you were sort of saying that you began as a painter and then became a photographer and then moved into cinematography. Yeah. Uh, did yeah. did you go to school for uh, visual art or did uh, did you go to school for film or like where, no, where did it come from? I came to film quite late compared to a lot of my peers. When I was in high school I took one film class in ninth grade and everyone else in the class was a senior and I was like what the heck am I doing here I'm just like the little freshman <laughs> like like I, I had no idea it was just an elective and I took film and we watched all these crazy movies and there was sex and I was like oh my god I'm so prude I don't want to see this you know what's going on like what, what, it was, what city is this in like where this where... is in Virginia nice <laughs> So, which actually has an amazing arts program, and I did band, I did music. Yes, I was in the marching band. You know, I I just had no idea what I was doing. But then I, I didn't do film again for a very long time until I was twenty six, and when I was in college, my boyfriend gave me a camera for Christmas, and that got me into photography, 
And at first I just used it to take pictures to inform my painting. And I'd, I'd been like drawing and painting my whole life. And I became more interested in photography because I would go out and wander around and take pictures. And I was like, this is really cool. Even though it was lonely. Like I, at the time I didn't think I was really lonely because I, you know, you, you can almost hide behind your camera. And that's what I kind of enjoyed about it. Like it yeah. gave me this like superpower. I could like go and <laughs> just take pictures and just put the camera up to my face. Much like I feel like people with cell phones do these days. Oh, uh, I'm at a party. I don't know anyone. Oh, I can just bury my face in my phone. That's kind of how easy. I felt like with photography. It's a great tactic. It's were a great you, tactic. Now, were you shooting uh, actual 35 millimeter or were you shooting digital at that time? Oh, digital wasn't invented back then. I was shooting. <laughs> I was shooting thirty-five. Uh, you know, I was shooting. Um, Tri-X was my jam. Nice. I, I would push it a couple stops. I would pull it. I would develop everything in the darkroom myself and print on fiber. And you know, I I did everything. I'd get high in the darkroom for hours. It was totally <laughs> rad. I loved. Did you, your, did you have your own darkroom, or was this like a I college? did not. I did not. I, there was a couple places in New York um, that I would just develop and print at. So, but okay, I studied so, at the Smithsonian D- in DC before I moved to New York. Oh, really? Like what? Like they have a photography program at the Smithsonian? Yeah, Smithsonian had yeah, they had great photography program, and I um I just did that as an elective, and I fell in love with it. So you you're you're from Virginia, but you end up mm-hmm. were you going to college in New York, and were you were you there to study art or film or something, or did you have a practical aspiration of some kind? It was called a boyfriend. Who lived in New York? So, uh, um, who is now my husband? Nice. So, well, so yeah. that worked out. Yeah, that worked out. It was all right, you know. Um, Twenty years later, so we were really in, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Twenty years of dating. I just had to be clear about that because it's like, wow, you've been together twenty years. People make fun of me because I celebrate our dating anniversary. I'm very proud that we've been together for a long time. I think in this business, especially, it's really hard to to maintain a relationship. I mean, you know how it is. It's the hours are insane. Production hours are just not normal. And you're both in the business. We are both in the business. My husband is in the voiceover business, which is why I have a professional studio in my home. It's pretty handy. Yeah. Um, so you moved to New York. Now, did you go to school? Did you go to college for for art or film or anything? I went to the University of Virginia where I met my husband. We were both mm-hmm. in acapella groups. It's like that movie uh, Pitch Perfect. Have you seen that? Uh, I have not. <laughs> um, so that's how we met. We were both in acapella groups. It's really, really, really dorky. But um, we met doing that, and I was almost an art minor, mm-hmm. and I took, I took, you know, uh, mythology, and I was studying Italian, and 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 drawing, and painting, and singing, and you know, just having a great time. And I met my husband, and then after college, I moved to New York, where I worked part time at. Deloitte and um, I was on a flexible work arrangement and the other four days I worked as a photojournalist so I paid for my bills working for Deloitte and then I would go and do my real passion which was photography at the time and I also was a a painter's assistant Emily Mason who's married to Wolf Kahn amazing expressionist painter oh wow I, I was her her assistant so she took me to Italy, and I had a great life in New York until 9-11. And that's when I decided to become a filmmaker. And you took some photographs of 9-11 that were, as a photojournalist, that are, are really well-known, correct? Yes, that's right. And that was really the life-altering moment for me. 
because I was really, really close to the devastation and I lost my apartment and, you know, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, but let me just say it was incredibly scary and uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. But my husband, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, we survived and uh, we made it out alive and decided, you know, I was, I quit my job at Deloitte and decided to pursue photography full time. And two years later, I applied to film schools based on my stills portfolio and I moved to the West Coast and the rest is history. It's, you know, it's, it's a life changing moment. That, yes, you know what, that is the time that there's a deciding factor in my life when I decided I needed to do something more with my life because it's way too short was the devastation of 9-11 during which I lost my apartment I lost everything and all I had with me was my Nikon and two rolls of black and white film wow and your so your apartment got was was your apartment destroyed or you just weren't yes. it wasn't livable no it was all the windows were blown in and half the building caught on fire Jeez. it was the closest residential building to the towers so oh my god really we couldn't return there. So we, uh, FEMA gave us a bunch of money and we moved to the Upper West Side because mm-hmm. we were living in Battery Park City at the time. But don't tell my parents that because they didn't know that we were living together. So, <laughs> <laughs> do they listen to a lot of podcasts? No, they don't even know what I do. You're safe. So, after that, what made you decide to apply to film school after that incident? I mean, like, you got some notoriety for your photographs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So after 9-11, at the time, my boyfriend was producing films at NYU. He was producing a bunch of graduate films. And I came on as a stills photographer on those sets and became really intrigued by the camera team. And I remember one of the ACs gave me the slate to slate one time and I was like, oh, my God. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So I like, I clapped them so hard in front of the actor's face. <laughs> Cause I, oh. you know, this is my first time ever on set. Yeah. And uh, the AC was like, you say soft sticks and you clap it really lightly. And I was like, oh my God. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, so embarrassed. Because that, that, that's a priori knowledge that someone who'd never been on a film set would have figured out on their own. Oh my gosh. I was like, Mark. <laughs> and like, plop, like right in front of their face. I had no idea. So yeah. But that was. I, I just got a taste of it and I was like, this is really cool. I think I could do this. And so, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. But um, based on the strength of my stills portfolio, I, I got in and uh, decided to choose UCLA because they gave me money. <laughs> and I was out of state and uh, it's really expensive out of state. So uh, I went there. Also, not really quite knowing what I was doing. I was like, oh, UCLA seems like a really cool program because you can do editing and directing and writing and I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. I just quit my job and, um, you know, almost died. So I'm just going to like move to the West Coast and see what's happening, see what's out there. And my sister-in-law actually is uh, Tatiana Regal and she was mm-hmm. just nominated for an Oscar for editing on I, Tanya. So she was in the business, yeah, and and she really took me and and showed me the ropes and brought me into her editing suite, and, like, I got to watch her cut There Will Be Blood, and, uh, you know, she worked with Sally Menke, and it was really amazing to just, like, sit in her editing room and really see, oh, 
this is how you cover a scene. Oh, okay. Well, why did they do that? And oh, this is a medium shot. There's a why, why did they cross the line at that point? It was really film school outside of film school. And um, I learned a lot about shooting in addition to film school, of course. But yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. editing is a great place to learn what, what you got to have because, you know. Absolutely. And it's there's nothing like watching another DP's dailies, especially people like Robert Ellswit and you know, <laughs> some like incredible DP's. But it was really incredible to just move out here and start new and start fresh and just like dive into filmmaking. Like I said earlier, I started really late. I started at film school when I was 26 and I was getting married the summer after. And it was just unheard of to to be in film school and to be married. And I wanted to have a family. I knew I was going to have to put my career on hold for that. And but, you know, you just make it work. That's awesome. So you have like an amazing roll of credits when I look, you know, like, and it seems like you've managed to get them in a relatively short amount of time. Like if you look up your, your work on IMDb, you've got a, a, just an outrageous number of stuff that, that you've uh, shot. Now, did you, when you got out of school, and this is something that I've talked to some people about, uh, when you got out of school, did you basically say like, I'm just going to shoot. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be in the camera department. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to DP. And that was the main, the main goal. And, and if, if so, how do you make that leap? Because I've talked to people who've, who want to be cinematographers, but they feel like they have to put in 15 years, uh, you know, lugging gear around. I think times have changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. And when I got out of film school in 2007, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. But the thing I did know was I wanted to shoot feature films. So I really tried to focus on narrative. And I had other friends, other DPs who were shooting music videos and commercials. And I just had no interest in doing that because I really wanted to tell stories. And that's why I went to film school. But it was a struggle. I mean, it's so hard to get your first feature. Yeah. And to it, it's not hard to do short films. I, I shot like, I don't know. 25 to 30 short films while I was at UCLA, which was amazing because the way that the program worked at the time that I was accepted, they only took two DPs and 18 directors. What? So yeah, that's pretty good odds. And well, that's why I chose UCLA over say AFI because I was like, well, I'm only one of like two DPs. It was really hard to get in. There are only two so, DPs in a class at, at I, UCLA? I think there's four now. I think they've I'm increased. assuming this is graduate level, right? This is graduate, yeah. This is graduate. I just, I mean, I come from a school that only accepted uh, 30 people per year at the time that I was there. So, you know, I, but they didn't discriminate one against the other. But I just always assumed UCLA has 40 million people in there every no, year. No, UCLA is like 20 people. It's very, very hard to get in. And and that's why I was like, well, I got in, so I should probably go here, you know. And also, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. giving me money because <laughs> I'm out of town, and it's expensive as hell. Um, so yeah, yeah you so move here, get, get residency yes, for two years, then go yes, to UCLA. The next, yeah, exactly. But I I was already 26, and I yeah. I didn't feel like I could really waste any more time. Not that I felt like I had wasted time up until then. I had a great career. Yeah, uh, you know, I, whatever. But um, I knew that most of my peers had been doing film for undergrad and always knew like when I was 12 years old I knew I wanted to be a director you know like I didn't yeah. know that oh god you're precocious <laughs> but for me I was like la 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 I'm just kind of coasting so 
it was a great experience because I basically could shoot all the short films and I really cut my teeth doing narrative short films. And then I got lucky enough. One of my professors at UCLA hired me to shoot her feature. So, yeah. So I was like still in school basically. And I shot this feature. And at the time it was like, I think it was like 700,000 or, and that was like kind of a lot back then. Because even now, <laughs> that's, that's, I'd say that's even more now. Like, I'm like, I'm like, what? <laughs> How are the budgets down. getting? I know it's insane. <laughs> and then also, like, you have ASC members shooting these one to two million dollar features. So where does that put us? <laughs> yes. So it's it's really competitive, and, and and the whole middle market of feature films has kind of gone away, and there's just not a lot out there that's um in that in that sweet spot twenty to sixty million dollar range. It's yeah. just not. A lot of films, almost none. I mean, it, it, none. it's completely gone away. If it's not a giant superhero clusterfuck, or you know, something that's being done. I mean, like I, I worked uh, with a guy who made it was part four of a horror series that he'd done and had been very successful, and he was only able to get four hundred k for the last installation of it. And oh the God. first installation, he'd had five million when he was before he was before he had the experience to really do it. Uh, I mean, he had the experience to do it. I, that sounds derogatory. But before, like, it was his first feature. And mm-hmm. now it's like his eighth feature. And he's getting like one-tenth of what he had to work with the first time. Isn't that bonkers? Yeah, it's just because they know that you, it's because the people with the money know that it can be done for less. Like, yeah. that director told, because I directed a movie that was two and a quarter million right around the same time that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he, he told me, like, if if you were hired to do it today, and it was for Warner Brothers, He's wow. like, if you, were, if you were hired to do it today, they'd give you half a million dollars. They would expect the identical movie. And, and it's, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, just because digital technology does allow people to make stuff less expensively, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, like locations don't get cheaper. Actors don't get cheaper. No. Your, your, your mortgage doesn't go down because no. it's digital. You know, like everybody mm-hmm. needs to be paid. No, but it's so relevant. Everything that you're saying is so relevant because people produce, and it's happening in commercials as well, and and budgets have gone way down, but they expect the same, if not more. Yeah, And they'll piggyback, like, other productions on your production and get, like, BTS and video and stills in there, and it's just, like, they just expect a lot more these days for less. Yes. So how's anyone going to be a filmmaker? It's so difficult to be a filmmaker. (laughs) It's really so hard. I'm... I. I don't know. I got really lucky. I just feel so grateful that I'm able to shoot these projects and and get hired. You know, it's well, so hard. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, you yes, anyone who breaks through, there's a certain amount of luck, but there's obviously an enormous amount of preparation that goes into it. And looking at the material on your reel, you see, a, a you know, an incredible mastery of, of, of the look. And this is Sort of why, uh, I mean, I ask everybody the question about composition versus lighting, but I feel mm-hmm. like your stuff, before I read your bio and realized that you were a stills photographer, I was like, wow, this stuff feels very compositionally driven, which to me mm-hmm. is, it's an, it's it's a different kind of cinematography. And I don't know if that, it could just be a coincidence that you worked with a bunch of directors who were like very compositionally driven. But then when I read that you had done all these stills photography, mm-hmm. that you had done stills photography, I, you know, it made sense that a stills photographer would be thinking inside mm-hmm. the, inside the frame in, in yeah. as specific a way as you seem to do in the material I've seen. Yeah. And, and you know what, going back to your original question, what do I see when I read a script? It is composition first. And then once I get a feel for like 
day exterior, then I start to think about the lighting more. But but composition has always come very naturally to me because of my background. Yeah. So I do see frames and I do see, oh, I really feel like we're on a wide lens far away at this moment in time. Oh, no, for this moment, I feel like I need to be on a longer lens far away. Or, oh, for this shot, for this emotion, I want to be like Chivo on a 21 millimeter like 10 inches away from their face, you know, and like, and different lenses and focal lengths mean different things emotionally. And when people say like, oh, do you have a favorite lens? I'm like, well, no, because I think there's a different application, a different emotion for each lens and the distance from lens to the subject, if that makes any sense. And, and Roger Deakins is, uh, you know, one of the great masters of cinematography. He's also my mentor and he always talked about, you know, a 32 millimeter close up being right there with your character is much different, means something else than, say, a 100 millimeter close up dirty over the shoulder. You know, a clean 32 millimeter. And if you look at all of his work with Coen Brothers, he he puts the camera between two characters talking as opposed to like doing it over the shoulder. And it mm-hmm. just depends on the scene. But like he it definitely makes a difference whether you're aware of it or not subconsciously. You, you are more present with the character if the char- if the camera is physically closer to the subject. And I think in documentary, I do a lot of documentary still, um, and I, I, I find it's very natural for me to be in that environment because being a fly in the wall was something I did in, in photography for a long time. So when I shoot documentaries, I like to gain the subject's trust and be right there with them as opposed to way back, um, you know, 40 feet on a long lens. It just means something different. And you'll feel that subconsciously as a viewer. Oh, uh, definitely. Also, well, for documentary, it seems like a wider lens means you're going to be chasing focus slightly less than if you were, you know, on a hundred millimeter lens the whole time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, that, that's interesting to, to hear because documentary, I, I can, I love kind of talking about documentary theory. We haven't really, we've only had one person in here whose main thing is documentary. But I always find it interesting because it's like some documentarians don't want to affect the story that they're shooting. Some documentarians want to lay back, you know, and Paul Greengrass had a documentary background before he started making his features and his features all look like crazy long lens, like Mm -hmm. you're shooting into a war zone documentary kind of thing. Yeah. You know, but then you've got people like Frederick Wiseman who just kind of crawl into the insane asylum with everybody. And and obviously he's in the room right there, you know? Yeah. It's a, just different emotions, though, you know? So I, I, I know it would probably take a year for you to explain it, but and you've, you've, you've talked through a few of them, but when you talk about um, lenses, specific lenses um, bringing about certain emotions, can you give me a few more examples of the kinds of lenses and how you would use them to, to get an emotion? Because obviously you could use a long lens for comedy, you could use a long lens for tragedy, you know, but mm-hmm. like what specifically when you're talking about that, how do you choose a lens? I guess maybe that's the better question. How do you choose a lens for the emotion that you're going for? I think it, de- I mean, I, I, I'm sound like a broken record. It depends on the emotion of the scene, <laughs> but you know, like, let's say, um, let me try to recall an example in, in my latest project, 
that I, I mean, just, that, that's probably yeah. a great way to do it. Just like walk me through a scene that you can talk about. You know, it's not in a movie that you're NDA'd on or something that that has like what made you just, you know, where you were in a situation where you were in a soundstage or you were in a situation mm-hmm. where you could have used any lens you wanted, but you had a specific vision for the kind of lens you wanted uh, specifically for the emotional feeling that that lens would bring across. Yeah, I would say just as a quick example, in the therapy sessions between Dr. Shakrani and Ramon in my latest series, Here and Now, there are times when we are dirty over the shoulder of of the therapist onto Ramon's character. But then at a certain point in the scene, Ramon has like this light bulb go off and he's like, oh, fuck, that's what this is about. And at that point, I move in on a 18 millimeter and I'm right there in his face. Yeah. You know, for the next cut. So it's like, whoa, dramatic. I don't know actually if the editor used that. <laughs> but just for, <laughs> but for, for, for the director, Lisa Cholodenko and I, we talked about that, like being really present. And Lisa Cholodenko, you know, brilliant director, writer, kids are all right. Laurel Canyon, high art. Yeah. She's been around the block a few times. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about like wanting to be really present with Ramon at that point in time, but saving it for that emotion. Where mm-hmm. he's like suddenly realizing, and then the rest of the scene is uh, done in in close up, on a wider lens. But at the beginning of it, we're way back in the room. We're we're kind of more objective with the camera, and then we just become more subjective for that one moment in the scene. Interesting. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. So in the show that you're talking about, that's that's the new Alan Ball series, right? Yes. Yes. So this is something I've been dying to ask someone who does television and features. Sure. Um, because we've had people who do one or the other and, and people who dabble in both, but you do a lot of both. Mm-hmm. So with a feature, you're telling a whole story and you're kind of creating an arc as a cinematographer visually. And yep. TV, by its by its very nature, is an ongoing story or it's serialized or whatever. Is there something like a visual arc that you're building into television and like what's what's the key uh, interest like what's the what what kind of what's the engine that kind of keeps television going and interesting for you when you're working on a series? It's really tricky because you can prep all you can in television, but when it comes down to it, when you're trying to shoot eight pages a day with five company moves, it gets really hard to stick to the vision and you can prepare and you're like, so I'm, it's like five it's, company moves. You're, yeah, it's you're insane. Eight yeah. Wonders that day. Exactly. But they'll kill you. The studio will kill you if you just give them winners. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, where's the coverage? Why don't we have the medium shot? You know, like, yeah. um, HBO's very, very, very generous to their artists and they let you do a lot of authorship, but you know, you still have producers and, and EPs and and showrunners saying, oh, we need to get some coverage, which I understand. It's to- you know what I mean. You got to no, quicken the pace. You only have sixty minutes for like a sixty-six page script, for example, and stuff's gonna get cut. But you know, you can't just have a oneer. Yeah. Um, I mean, we you can do, like for example, even in episode one hundred and two on here and now, uh, the director Uta Brieswitz and I, we did this oneer for this whole lecture scene, which with Steadicam and my Steadicam operator, Chad Persons, is phenomenal. He's just incredible with his timing and his move. You tell him once and he just gets it. And also he has dance training. 
Sorry, Chad. Oh. But it's true. And he's so brilliant with with rhythm. And, and it's all about, you know, feeling and dancing with the actors, right? So anyway, we did this have to. beautiful one yeah. yeah. We did this beautiful one and it just got chopped up in the edit. And I was like, oh, uh, like dagger in my heart. And yeah. we worked so hard. I lit it for 360, <laughs> you know. I was like, oh man. oh, man. And then they just cut it. But, you know, we had to provide those options. Yeah. Because yeah. we did the, we worked on the one first. We got it. And then, okay, let's go in for coverage. I'm like, well, don't call it a one then. <laughs> We're going to go. In. That's my, oh, I love when people say that. Oh, yeah, this is a one Okay, let's move in for coverage. Well, <laughs> Do you know what that means? <laughs> one <laughs> Oh man. Well, and, and I think that like when you when you say you're going to do something as a one then you ha- you're committing to make it all work in one shot, and you have to start over if any part of it doesn't work. Whereas if it's a master shot, you can just you can just say hold, pick it up wherever you want, and you know because you're going to yeah. be able to cut into it wherever you need to. But that's the difference between television and feature. In a feature, you don't have anyone saying where's the coverage unless you're doing a studio picture and. The yeah. producers are like what well, we really feel strongly, but you know, for the most part, there's a reason why you get hired to do a feature, and and so you want to stay true to that vision. Are there any other major differences between shooting features and shooting television? Oh yeah, so many. So <laughs> uh, it's like I can go on and on and on. The look in your eyes was like that look of like, oh, the stories oh, I, I can't wait. tell you. Is there an edit <laughs> button on this? Are you gonna <laughs> this off the record? <laughs> so so the one or thing, the coverage thing, is a big thing for television, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is also um, with lighting. A lot of times they'll be like, oh, it's a little dark. Can you just add some fill for uh, for TV? Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, sure. You know, I get it. And you have to, there's a lot of people you have to listen to. When you're working for somebody like HBO, like I feel like HBO is one of the places that takes big risks in television. Do you find that HBO is a little bit more permissive when it comes to like, they want it to be darker, edgier, whatever, or that you wouldn't get on NBC? They don't, they don't want yeah. as, mu- as much fill light on HBO. Network? HBO, yeah. no fill light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. HBO really gives a lot of freedom to their artists and yeah. it's great, but you know, they're still a studio. And so you still have to deliver, like if something isn't cutting, then they might come back the next day and say, Hey, you know, can you just maybe make sure you get a medium shot or something? Yeah. Because, and that's the beauty of television. And that's what I love about being able to do both. And I, I feel very fortunate that I can go in and out of um you know be- between doing a feature and then doing a TV show and going back to a feature is their turnaround is so fast that your learning curve is just really really steep and you can watch your work the next day and have it cut together and say to yourself oh, wow. oh my gosh what the hell was i thinking that's horrible <laughs> like i'm not going to do that tomorrow you know or oh my god that was way too dark i need to like whatever brighten that up or you know whatever it is but you you watch the dailies and you watch the scenes get cut together and you can see how it's all coming together and and if if it's really your vision whereas in features it could be like eight months later and you see a cut and you're like oh my god I've grown so much as an artist I would never do that now (laughs) you know what I'm saying so I love I love television for that for that turnaround and, and being able to to see your work and then to grow very quickly yeah, in, yeah. in your work. And I was just watching something I did for uh, for HBO and I was like, oh, wow, that 
that move really feels like TV. God, I got to get back into doing features, you know? <laughs> like, whoa, that, that transition was so TV. Or I wish I had that transition, or I wish they had used that because that feels less TV. And you, I mean, not that, you know, TV is bad and it's really changed. It, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's many hard incredible to tell the difference shows. sometimes. Oh, and yeah. A few years ago, um, there was a, when Hannibal was still on the air, there was a screening at LACMA of the first episode of season three of Hannibal. And it was packed and it really did just look like I was, I, it was the first time I'd watched a, a TV show on a big screen and just felt like I was watching a movie. I love that show, actually. And I, I've used it for references a lot. It's I love the, most the lighting beautiful. and yeah, it's so beautiful. I resisted it for a long time because The Silence of the Lambs might be my favorite movie of all time. Oh, okay. and I've never seen anyone else do justice to that character. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a big horror fan and my horror buddies were like, you got to watch Hannibal. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to bother. And then one day on a plane, I watched it. And I'm like, this is the best television show on television. Like, I can't believe I have so been avoiding good. it. It was so good. I yeah, loved yeah. it. I loved it. It was super freaky. <laughs> but I love, I love, it was so cinematic. And I think that's what, is so beautiful about television these days. And I was so resistant to television for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I passed on a lot of stuff. And then finally I said yes to Alan Ball because no one says no to Alan Ball because he is just amazing yeah. as a human being and as an artist. But I had just shot a feature in Toronto and I was away from my family for a very long time. And I have two young children and a husband and I the previous year I had been gone for almost ten months. I had oh, wow. been in yeah. So that was a year I did a movie in Italy, a movie in Utah, and then a pilot in Minnesota. Back to back to back. Yeah. So that was really intense and it's really hard on the family. And then right after that I booked um a studio feature in Toronto and I couldn't turn that down. Mm-hmm. It's for Sony Pictures. And then while I was there, I got the call to interview for Alan Ball show. But I had also passed on a TV show in L.A., which I didn't want to do because it was like a half-hour comedy. And I was like, I really want to do something dramatic because I had done The Little Hours, which was a comedy, and Deidre and Laney, Robert Train, which is comedy. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't want to – not that there's anything wrong with comedy. I just – I'm really drawn to dramas, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when I made the decision to do the TV show because we were shooting in L.A. and Paramount Studios and in Portland. So, and also was Alan Ball. It just worked out perfectly. Obviously, yeah, the guy's yeah. work is amazing. Six Feet yeah. Under to me is still kind of oh my you know, gosh, a, an amazing leap up in television. What was the um so of of your films? What was the tipping point for you? Which was the film that once you made it, your phone started ringing more often? You know the. The film that really got me recognition from HBO, and I say that would be the tipping point for me, was this feature I shot in Hawaii. And it played at a film festival. It was called Pally Road. It was a a Chinese film, and we shot it in Hawaii. And that's when I was nursing my second child so i would like be be pumping milk in the forest (laughs) like literally in the wood in like the jungles of hawaii while you were shooting while i was shooting and i had a pa bring me ice and put everything in a cooler and then i would have the pa like ship it on dry ice back to the mainland oh my god yeah yeah like 
insane. I feel like this is becoming like a running, uh, a, a running pattern that that we're finding is you know like women who are pregnant while they're shooting or women who are young mothers and still being able to like go yeah. out and, and and kick ass and make these films. Why not? People have been doing that for years. I mean, f- women who are farmers don't stop because they're pregnant. You know. When you were coming up, did you find that being a woman had any impact on being a cinematographer and getting work? I would have to say no. I really didn't look at myself as a female cinematographer. I just tried to really focus on the work. I just saw myself as a DP. And I never, ever have said, oh, I didn't get that job because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Like, I have never felt that way. And I I feel lucky that I've never felt that way because I know a lot of women who feel that way. Like, oh, why did I not get the job? It must be because I'm a woman. Never have ever said that. And I'm really hard on myself. I'm very self-critical. And so maybe that's just my perspective. Like, oh, I didn't get it because I wasn't the best one for the job or my work sucks. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I'm just a terrible DP. Like, I would never say, oh, it's because I'm a woman. I would just say like, oh, you know, I need to do better. I need to improve my craft. I need to hone my craft more. I need to work on my lighting. I need to work on my camera movement. Um, I would never say to myself, I, I, it's because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, because I'm a little bit older than a lot of the younger females who are coming up now, like Rachel, Rachel and I, we put in a lot of time shooting features, like almost a dozen features before we got our first studio job. And these days, I think with Instagram and with music videos and these commercials, I think that women are moving up faster. Like you don't necessarily have to shoot 10 features before you get your first job. And I don't know if it's because other women ahead of us, like Amy Vincent and Tammy Riker and Mandy Walker and Ellen Cross and Nancy Schreiber have blazed those trails for us. And I know they have. Or if it's just like the general shift in Hollywood mm-hmm. towards women. You know, I don't, I don't know where exactly. It's a combination of everything. Just being a woman, being a minority, being a mother, I do feel like there's not a lot of people like me shooting at the level that I'm shooting. So I do want to be an example of you can do it. You can have a family. You don't have to sacrifice anything to, if you want to really be a storyteller. So I'm asking you mostly for me here. How do you how do you regulate the work uh, life balance? I've never been good at it ever in my whole life. I've always been all work and no play. But you know, now that I'm gonna have a kid, I'm, that's not gonna be an option. Yeah, it's taken me a long time to find the work life balance. But there are a lot of rules that I have set down in the house. For example, if my husband and I are both home at dinner time, there's no cell phones. There's no phone calls. There's no computer. It's just we're focusing on the children. We're all eating dinner together. Mm-hmm. And that's something that my parents made us do. We couldn't watch TV while we ate dinner. We had to sit down as a family and eat dinner together. And at the time, you don't know how important that is. As a, as a kid, you're just like, oh, I just want to watch TV. I just want to eat in front of the TV. No, no, absolutely not. My parents would not allow it. And I think that really stuck with me. And so these days... You know, we really try to eat dinner together as a family and we do the whole dinner routine with the bedtime routine. We read stories every night. We have solid routines. And then on the weekends, I try not to do any meetings or any kind of like work during the daytime. 
we always go out as a family. We hike. We we go out together. We do little staycations. But you really have to set these rules and stick to them, and that's worked for us uh, really well. And you, but you just really have to enforce them. And even tonight, I caught myself like picking up my phone because I saw it like a couple text messages came through, and I was like, ah. And so I just like put it in the other room so I would force myself not to look at it during I dinner know. time. I mean, like the phones, they say that like everything about them is designed to get you addicted to them. And it really is. Oh yeah. So it takes discipline to not look at your phone and not so check much Facebook discipline. every five minutes. Yeah. It's so much discipline and you just have to really set these boundaries. If you really want to make your home life successful. And if you're happy at home, I think you're going to be happy on set and vice versa. And I had to overcome a lot of guilt when I went back to work, because I, a lot of people would say to me, wow, how can you leave your children? And there's, you know, one, <laughs> the first time. Business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, what do you do? <laughs> Are you in the biz? Oh, and man. yeah. And so, you know, at first I used to be very defensive, but now seeing my children and seeing how well adjusted they are, I know that if I were not a DP, I would be so miserable and that would f- filter down to my children and they would be miserable because they would, s- they, children are sponges and I know that's really cliche, but mm-hmm. they absorb everything and they absorb not only what you say, but how you appear and, and how you act. They're watching everything oh, no. and that, I and so I think screwed. about my parents, I'm you're so, so fucked you are just <laughs> it's true though like and i think that's why that dinner story with my parents really stuck with me because it was an experience and my parents weren't verbally loving like they never said i love you or hugged us or anything but they were affectionate towards each other and through their actions they showed their love for their children oh, does okay. that make sense yeah and it's because i mean i'm vietnamese and that's very cultural, I think. A lot of my Vietnamese friends can relate to that. A lot of my Asian friends can relate to that. So it's translated to the present where I'm I'm now a parent to my two kids. And I know that if I were not happy, that they would not be happy. But seeing them thrive, seeing them so well adjusted makes me feel good about what I do because I am so happy when I come home from work every day. Oh, that's amazing. Um, do you go out of your way to get jobs that are in, in the local area so that you can spend more time with them? Or, you know, are, are you, do you still want to do travel when you travel? Do you take them with you? Are they old enough to go with you yet? Well, my son's in kindergarten, so it makes traveling a little more difficult. Oh, I bet. When I, when I was gone for almost 10 months, two years ago, he was still young. So they, he was just in preschool and I, he could come with me with my nanny to wherever I was going and my daughter was like you know a couple months old so like they came to Hawaii uh, they've been there like four times sweet um, they came to Toronto and um, they came to New York you know I'm just thinking about all the features I've done in all these different cities so they they've come with me up until this past fall when my son started kindergarten and it really has affected my career choices because right after I wrapped here and now, I was offered all these jobs. Like one was in Prague, 
One was in Budapest, one was in France, one was in um, Puerto Rico, another in Atlanta. I got some um, offers in Toronto and Vancouver and another one in Minnesota. And I, I passed on all of them because, you know, I just, I didn't want to leave the family mm. right away. And th those started like right after Thanksgiving and I just couldn't do it. I was like, you know what? I know I've been home for six months, but I really wasn't because TV schedules are so demanding. And we would go often into six-day weeks. We would do double-ups. And since we were shooting in Portland, we would shoot five days and then on a Saturday travel back to L.A. and then really only have one day off. So it's not like I was home. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were shooting these insane schedules and hours. I would leave before the kids woke up and I would get home after they went to bed. So... It it was it's kind of ironic. I took this job at Paramount Studios, which is less than three miles from my house, and yet I did not see my kids. And my husband at one point, in jest, I hope, <laughs> said to me, you know, you might as well just have taken a job out of town. And I was like, oh, you know what? That's so true. And it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. That, that smarts a little bit. But it's true. Like, TV schedules are really, really demanding. And when you're working on it, and when you're working on a TV show too, and I guess this is kind of shifting back to the actual craft of it, um, like the Alan Ball show, there's three DPs on that, correct? Yeah, James Laxon shot the pilot, mm -hmm. and then I shot. It's ten episodes, and then I shot five episodes, and Jeffrey Waldron shot four. So, is there a handshake between uh, you and Jeffrey? In terms of like, obviously, stylistically, you guys, the two of you are are keeping the show looking the way, looking consistent, I guess. Yeah. So what is the communication like with yourself and the other DPs who are shooting uh, the same series? It's a handshake and then a couple punches. No, <laughs> um, you know, I really tried to, because I was the first one up after uh, the pilot, I really tried to communicate um, James's vision throughout the rest of the show, but the the story evolves so much in a in a very interesting way. I'm not allowed to give it away, but I think as the story developed, the style also developed mm -hmm. and changed, and as as we saw fit. But I would try to consult with Jeffrey, you know, hey, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, all the crew hires I would run by him. I was like, hey, can you meet with this guy? I'm thinking about hiring, and you know, I really wanted to be inclusive, because um. I really love to collaborate and I wanted to be fair to Jeffrey and I wanted him to be happy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though we have very different styles and, and techniques, we really tried to make it consistent because we wanted to both do a really good job and, and also stay true to James's vision for the uh, original pilot. Mm -hmm. So we would talk a lot and he would watch my dailies and then I would watch his dailies and, I would ask him, oh, why'd you do this? And he would say, oh, why'd you do You know, like, it's it was very open dialogue. And, um, and, and this is a very basic question, but mm -hmm. is, is there some kind of a lookbook or style guide or something that, that you write down that you guys have? Like a, uh, like a Bible would be for writers, something that you would have as a reference mm -hmm. book? Yeah, we had, we had a book, not a book, but more like a, a one sheet that James had put together. And he wrote us, a very lovely letter talking about his vision for the show and we just tried to interpret that the best way the best that we could you know i wanted i I'm, i respect other dps very much and i want to make sure that we continue that vision so yeah and when i think about alan ball kind of shows or lena dunham are you allowed to talk about the lena dunham show at all yet or is that 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's official. So I just started prep on Monday for a new half-hour comedy by Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor. And I'm really excited because it shoots in L.A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that was one of the factors in my decision-making process. But really, after meeting with Lena and Jenny, I just... I fell in love. I think they're amazingly talented and smart and really good people. Just Jenny has kids of her own and Lena is working on adopting. And, you know, I just think they're wonderful people. And I think in this business, you want to work with good people. And that that, that says a lot. Um, well, and Lena Dunham comes from comedy. And I, I to a degree, I kind of think of her as, as like almost a millennial Kevin Smith in a way yeah. in that she's like speaking directly to her generation in her generation's language. But, um, but I feel like she's also, uh, going back even to her, her first feature, I think it was her first feature, uh, tiny, tiny furniture. furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very cinematic. Like, like she really has an amazing eye and a discerning eye and, um, mm-hmm. very smart. And like, so when you're, and I know you haven't started shooting with her yet or have you started shooting at all? No, we just started prep two days ago. Oh, so it's probably too early. Maybe maybe we'll have to come have you come back and talk about what the experience was like after you after mm-hmm. you've done it. But I'm just wondering how much of how much of her work like on the page or in talking to her is already visually figured out before she starts. Well, I you know, I asked her about the references and what she likes and just get a vibe. Do you want it to look like girls? Do you want to go a totally different direction? And she was really flattering she said you know q we we loved what you did on little hours Mm -hmm. and i was like oh cool you know that was really zany i did a lot of i don't know if you've seen it but i haven't seen the film but i watched uh, like i i watched a bunch of the footage that i could find online i I could you know maybe there's an obvious place to find it but i wasn't able to find it it's only two ninety nine on iTunes. Oh, I'll man. buy it for you. That's way too I'll much. I'll buy it for you. No. <laughs> you missed it. It was like movie of the week a couple weeks ago for like ninety nine cents. I was like, okay, nobody has an excuse to <laughs> not buy this right now. It was ninety nine cents, you guys. Well, I think it goes um, into sort of like the weird fractured landscape that we're in because I'd never even heard of it. Like yeah. like and everybody who's in it is somebody who I'm a fan of. So I was surprised. It's like huge yeah. Yeah. You know, so I was actually kind of surprised that I wasn't seeing ads for it, but it's kind of the Netflixification of the world where it's like rather than yeah. a P&A budget, just one day the movie's there. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's so much oversaturation. Yeah. <laughs> there's like an incredible amount of content these days. There's so many shows that you've never even heard of, you know, like I've worked on some I, of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've worked on like about <laughs> 10 features. Um it's it's really fun right now in in my research watching half hour comedy. This is my first half hour comedy mm-hmm. that I've ever done. So, um, my friend said, "Hey, have you seen End of the Fucking World?" I was like, "No, that sounds cool." So I watched it, and it's so brilliant. Yeah, it's on Netflix, right? It's on Netflix. It's I think it's like is it eight episodes? And they're like twenty minutes each, but it's shot so beautifully. It's so cinematic. The acting is impeccable. The characters are lovable. I mean, it's like really just fucking weird. But I, I love it. And I'd never heard of it. Yeah. A few people have recommended it to me and I, I need to check it out. I haven't had a chance to yeah, see it yet. It's so good. It's word of mouth. Yeah. And, and another show that I started watching, another half hour comedy, is Fleabag. I've never have you seen that, that one. Yeah. Fleabag. Check it out. It's an, in the, funny, funnily enough, these are both British shows. 
And in Fleabag, I think they shoot an anamorphics. I mean, that's what I can see from the scope and from the bouquet, mm-hmm. but it, it really looks like anamorphics and it's, I haven't done my uh, research into, <laughs> into the specs, but um, from what I can see, it's like, this is really beautiful and hilarious, just the tone. So I've just been doing a little research on half hour comedies because I'm trying to develop a, a look for the show and I want to make it very cinematic. And, and Lena and Jenny talked about that and they were like, well, we, we love you because we want we want you to bring your feature experience to our show, you know? Well, and lately in like the half, like, you know, 10 years ago, half hour comedy would mean sitcom or maybe something as like, avant-garde as my name is Earl. But today half hour, like the tick, which is on, um, on Amazon, they, I don't mm-hmm. know how much money they're putting into it, but it is loaded with visual effects and it's got like more VFX than you would see in a lot of movies 10 years ago. Wow. And, uh, and it's a, a goofy comedy, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that kind of thing going around where I feel like what makes a 30 minute show, I, I don't know. I mean that the, the industry is changing because people will watch a 30 minute drama, but anyway, yeah, no, I, I'm interested to see what Lena Dunham does next too, because I feel mm-hmm. like girls was kind of a, an extension of, of tiny furniture to a degree, but, mm-hmm. but I'm, I don't know anything about the show that you're working on now. And I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it, but I imagine that she's, yeah. she's moving to probably she's in a different phase of her life. And so I'm wondering, is it, is it going to be, is it like girls or what is it, what is it like if you're saying if they're, if they're bringing you on board, I'm assuming it's because they wanted to have not that girls wasn't cinematic, but that they want a Mm -hmm. different kind of cinematic style than they've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can talk about it because I think it's in the trades, but it's called camping Mm -hmm. and it's actually based on the British half hour comedy of the same name. So again, the Brits really know their comedy. (laughs) And we're just stealing off. <laughs> well, stealing the Brits have been them. like less dialed in with like hour drama, half hour comedy. Like they, you know, they Brits, you know, they will do six episodes of a show and call it a day. You know, they've been doing that for years. Um, yeah. So it's a half hour comedy, but uh, I don't know if you you read Lena's essay. She had a hysterectomy recently. Mm-hmm. I heard about and, it. I don't know that I read her essay. Yeah. So the protagonist in the show is um, Jennifer Garner. And oh, wow. she, yeah, I'm really excited because I don't know if you watched the Oscars, but she talked about like her return to television. I, I saw her mention that. Yeah. yeah. So that's for, for, for the show camping. And so she's a protagonist or antagonist. <laughs> um, and she had in the, in the script, she undergoes a hysterectomy five years ago. So mm-hmm. I think it's drawing from a lot of personal experience and, and I, I think it's, gonna be really um I don't want to say like personal but you know Lena draws from her experience and 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 with Jennifer Garner's charisma and everything this insufferable character becomes a little more human and I think that's what made girls so successful because we we see a little bit of ourselves in each of those characters as Mm -hmm. insufferable as they can be at times you know (laughs) what I mean and they'll be the first to say that oh yeah we're masters at insufferable but um, I'm really excited about this show because it's a really great ensemble cast. I, I can't really share the other um, cast members yet because I don't think they've signed their deal memos. But totally um, understand. But it's I think it's going to be really fun. And is is Lena Dunham? I don't know if you're allowed to say this. Is she in the show as well, or is she mostly behind the camera? She's mostly in the writers' room. Yeah, oh, okay. She's yeah, yeah. Is she going to be directing the show at all? We don't know yet. Uh, Jenny Connor, her partner, is directing the pilot and the second episode. 
Oh, cool. So that's all that's confirmed right now. So I think um, they're trying to fill in the rest of the directors right now, and uh, maybe Lena will direct one of the later episodes. Who knows? But right now they're really focusing on the writing because you know not all the scripts are ready yet. Mm-hmm. So, but the two scripts that I've read so far are incredibly funny, and I think uh, it's gonna get zany really soon. And I'm looking awesome. forward to that. Yeah. Awesome to see like what how she follows up girls. Yeah. I think it's like girls 20 years later. <laughs> so all the characters <laughs> are like in their early 40s, mid 40s. It's it, it centers around Walt's birthday. Walt is uh, the character who is Jennifer Garner's husband. And it's his mm-hmm. 45th birthday. And his birthday dream was to have a camping trip with all of his friends and family. But it goes awry, you know. So it's it's going to be it's going to be fun and it's going to be I think for me cinematically it's going to be challenging because there's going to be a lot of characters like eight characters at times. So to make that look cinematic in a campground with a lot of dialogue and everything a lot of times and I and I understand why comedy you cut back and forth and back and forth because of the timing and everything. So I'm trying to find a way to make it very cinematic but within the confines of this situation, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Well, yeah, whenever you're doing scenes with multiple yeah. people, just yeah. it eats up your day just getting all the coverage of all those yeah. people. Eight, eight people. <laughs> eight people, like maybe eight, yeah. eight lines to set up. Exactly. I'm like, okay, there's only so many ways I can do it. But, you know, I'd, it'd be wonderful if we can do a lot of moving masters and wider shots. Um, if you think about some of the paintings from the renaissance where they look really 2d with the Mm -hmm. stacked like people on top of each other we kind of want to get that vibe and there are moments where i really want to punctuate uh certain emotions with some kind of cinematic tropes like uh over cranking or pushing in to a face with like flames and the eyes from the campfire you know what i mean (laughs) like there's there are certain things that i'm already like envisioning that's cool. And and hopefully they'll be they'll add like that cinematic vibe to the show. You know, and do you I, tend to um on, on stuff like that do you tend to bring multiple cameras, two, three cameras or do you tend to stick to single camera when you can? I'd like to treat it as a single camera show, so if I'm lighting, I I try to just light for one direction and maybe go profile or a little tighter for the second camera, but I a lot of times, you know, you, you're running out of time, running out of daylight. You know, this is daytime exteriors for a lot of it. It's on a campsite. So I'm going to do the best I can to light for one direction. But at times I know I might have to do some cross coverage, especially if they're going to be improvising. Oh, God, yeah, so, you have to. Yeah. So it's just trying to find the most beautiful light for co- cross coverage, which I haven't had to do a lot. So, Do you tend to operate your own camera as well? I always operate my cameras on my features. Mm-hmm. But when I shoot multicam TV, I do not operate. No, and I think a lot you, of... You have to watch both, right? You have to watch both. But, but not only that, you have to deal with a lot more parties. You have to deal with the producers. You have to deal with new directors who are just stepping in for one episode. And you have to mm-hmm. show them the ropes and you really have to be there for them. And so it's really much more efficient as a DP on a television show to not operate because you are dealing with so many different people. So I I really only want to ask you one more question, unless there's something else you wanted to talk about. I I wanted you to talk a little bit about the mentorship stuff you were doing 
and maybe go into a little bit more detail about it, like what brought you to it and, and how are you helping young women get into this? Just today I was talking to a young woman who is is trying to get pregnant. And last week I was talking to a young woman who just had a baby and is deciding whether to move to Atlanta or not because of a lot of work there. And I said, well, do you want to be an operator or do you want to be a DP? Because if you want to be an operator, sure, you can go to Atlanta. There's a lot of work there. But if you want to shoot films, you just have to shoot films. And yes, there's something to be said about curating your career and only trying to do work that you feel really strongly connected to. But if it's been like four years and you still haven't shot a feature, it's it's kind of time to 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 step up and, and take a project and, and really bring the most you can to it, even if, you know, it's not 100% because you, four years is way too long to not shoot a feature. So that, like that kind of stuff, I, I get questions about all the time. And a lot Are of- Are you mentoring like through a specific program? Or is no. There way- well, actually there's uh, two organizations that I'm a member of. Um, the ICFC, the International Collective of Female Cinematographers, and Cinematographers XX, which is more the New York version of it. Um, oh, I think that, that's I've never heard anyone talk about either one of those. those oh, really? Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually pretty active. I'm really good friends with the people who created the groups. Autumn Aiken created Cinematographers XX. She's a wonderful, lovely person, a very talented cinematographer, and you know she just wanted to create a a website, a group for producers and directors to go to, to, to seek out female cinematographers and check out our bodies of work. And the same thing with the ICFC. And they, it's funny because they started at the same time. So through those, I have met a lot of younger female DPs and they reach out to me and they're like, hey, would you mind talking to me about this? Because, you know, there's not a lot of women who have partners who are supportive um, and understanding and also, you know, I have two kids, so there's not a lot of us out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mentor a lot of women from UCLA because I, because of that connection, but I was just talking to, um, one of my mentees and she sent me a picture of, of the union. Cause I said, you need to join. She's like, I'm not ready. I'm like, no, you just, just you're ready. And I think I think a lot of women feel like that. Well, I'm not even I feel like that all the time. I'm like, "Well, I don't know. Can I do you think I can handle this job?" You know, <laughs> like we have so much self-doubt. I don't know. It's just like a a gender thing, but uh, I don't think a man would ever I say, knows. "I don't think I'm ready for that." I think yeah. some people are better at hiding their self-doubt, but uh, yeah. you know. I don't know. I don't know anyone who's any good at what they do who doesn't uh, deep down think that they're a fraud. So. Oh my god! Every time I wrap a show, I'm like, I'm never gonna work again. <laughs> Always. Oh my gosh! Even like I said earlier, I'm like watching my my show, and I'm like, oh, why did I do that? Gosh, that's what? Why did I light it like that? It's so bright, or oh, that's you know, I could add a little more fill. I can barely, you know, like it's just I'm always questioning myself. But I think uh, as soon as I don't, I think I've become complacent and lazy. So. I hope that yeah. I keep on doing this, much to my husband's chagrin. You know, <laughs> God, just stop with the self-loathing. You know, it's part of it. Keeps Can't us help going. It. Can't help it. So, so I think that's a great place for us to leave it. Uh, where can people find your work online if they're looking to see your work? Or uh, yeah, do you have a website? Twitter, yeah, or they can. It's a quienfilm.com. That's my website, and I'm constantly updating that's- it as we all are. Q-U-Y-E-N. Y-E-N, film.com, yeah. And then you can also um, 
check out my films on iTunes or Netflix, and then you can check out HBO Go and check out the latest series here and now. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. All right. So that was uh, Q Yan Tran. Thank you so much, Q, for coming on the show. It was great to have you and uh, hope to have you again sometime on the show. Great, great information. Okay, Ben, it's my favorite time of the show. What's that? Time to pay the bills. Who's Bill? <laughs> Bill. Uh, it, it turns out we're Bill. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, uh, I got to talk about Airy. Airy is our wonderful sponsor. And Love they, them. And they constantly do cool new things like introduce a lighting control app called Stellar. What? Yes. So they already have a thing called the Sky Panel. We've talked about it before. It's yes. an incredible Pretty LED amazing. lighting system. Yes. Well, they have an app that controls the Sky Panel. In fact, it controls pretty much every stellar is the app that controls the sky panel yes it does and uh there is a lot of information about it online i bet that app's super expensive because it's airy how much is it free (gasps) (laughs) well it does say in-app purchases and i haven't Uh, gotten to delve into it completely yet it's just t-shirts and hats but you know i was able to download it to my phone it didn't ask me for a credit card or any money or anything like that yes so you can start playing around with the airy stellar app immediately on a smartphone, on an iPad, it, it looks it looks really impressive. You can do all kinds of different uh, modes and switching and saving and transferring the important things that you might do from one setup to another setup and keep track of it. So that means what? like next time you come back to set or to another job, it's like, oh, what was that thing I did on the last job? Bloop, there they are. Bleep, blorp, it, there it is. <laughs> So, so anyway, uh, check out the Stellar app. It might be something that uh, totally helps your workflow. Totally helps the way that you uh, that you address lighting on set today. Take your sky panel into the next dimension. That's free, Ari. You can use my 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 tagline. Enjoy. All right, Ben. So uh, we've been waiting for this next war story for a long time. Oh well, I mean, like when. <laughs> So to give the audience like a slight bit of, uh, of, of background, yeah. the, when we first talked about doing the cinematography podcast in what, 2006? Yes, uh, something like that. Thereabouts. Uh, we had lunch with a woman named Lydia. Yes, Lydia. Lydia, who's married to a fella named Shane, who maybe you've all heard about. And if you haven't... You, you're under a rock. You're an idiot. Shane, <laughs> Shane Hurlbutt. Yeah, call, no. I would call our listeners an idiot for not having heard of Shane. Shane Hurlbutt is an amazing cinematographer. He's been around forever. He does unbelievably awesome work. And frankly, if you're the kind of person who picks up a DSLR and makes a narrative project with it, you owe Shane Hurlbutt a debt of gratitude for blazing trails in in filmmaking with uh when the it was the 5d mark ii he was out there making action movies on that like almost as soon as the as the thing came out he is brilliant he's charismatic he's somebody who i've always wanted to meet and uh and his war story i just want to say it won't disappoint no it's bananas it's the most bananas war story we've ever recorded, and we've recorded some way out banana pants war stories. And and here's what you guys all get to listen, to, get to look forward to. Now, listening to this war story, uh, that just means the very next episode is like an hour of Shane or more. It's like it, you're going to get the full Shane experience. Yes. I'm not lying when I say Shane is awesome. He's one of my heroes. I'm unbelievably excited that we got him on the show, and here is his war story. And now, war stories. I had gotten a script called Drumline. 
and I got this call from uh, a producer named Tim Bourne. And uh, he called me up and he goes, so Shane, you know, what do you think of this script? And I go, Tim, I don't get this saints go marching in shit. How is this ever gonna be a movie? People sitting there beating on drums and dancing and stuff. I just don't get it. He goes, where are you staying? And I go, uh, I'm in the Westin in Kansas City. He goes, tomorrow. <laughs> Hangs up. I'm like, what the? What is this, like some secret society shit, right? So then I, I get in and I open my door and there is the video roller cart. You remember those little roller carts, the AV cart that had a monitor on it and had a little uh, VHS deck to it? So all it's, there was a tape on the top and it said, watch me. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This is so secret society shit. I love it, right? Not only does he hang up with me, he then sends this whole thing up. So I puts the thing and the screen ignites. And all of a sudden he goes, Senate erupt. And this drum line just starts doing all this moving and the sound is incredible and they're sticking and they're flipping and they're spinning their timpani drums and beating the bass drums and everything and just going all around in this thing and I was running for the phone. I like picked it up and I go, Tim, he goes, oh, you saw the VHS, huh? And I'm like, this thing's unbelievable. I, I cannot wait to be on this, you know, movie. And he goes, oh, so you don't like the saints go marching in bullshit? You know, he was like giving me a hard time. I'm like, Jesus, I'm all passionate about it. Now you're like, you know, pounding me into the ground. He goes, all right, I'll get you on a plane tomorrow. So I literally went directly from Kansas City right into this film. And when I landed, I met this director, Charles Stone, who I absolutely love. And he had done the most successful commercial ad campaign in history. He came up with the WhatsApp ad for Budweiser. So out of that, we met and, uh, you know, he, he acts in the commercial as well. So I had seen his face on all the ads and everything. So we started talking and, you know, when you read a script and this is what you kind of, you know, we talked about, you know, you read a script, you start to, you know, you read it and then you start to visualize it and you start to see what the light's like and what the camera's like and everything. So I got the Senate that's just you know, sticking and beating these drums and all this stuff. So what do I envision? I envision that damn, you know, tunnel at USC where that band comes out of that tunnel and they come into the LA Coliseum and the crowd goes crazy. So we go to the location and, you know, he goes, hey, Shane, how you doing? You know, and he's showing me around. He goes, all right, Shane, this is the tunnel that they come out of. And it's literally like this conference room. It was false ceiling, four feet wide, and two double doors at the end of it, and 60 feet long. I go, okay. 
And then think about what you envision the music room to this incredible, you know, orchestra of of music this band you think oh it's double and triple and quadruple layered and there's sound baffles and wood and all this stuff and you got the the conductor down in there and so i go from that okay here's the tunnel and then he walks me in to a nine foot high ceiling with two different roster layers of six inches high fault ceiling fluorescent lights, a mural painted on cinder block. And he goes, this is Dr. Lee's music room. Okay. Then he takes me to the Coliseum where I walk in and I'm thinking, oh my God, it's gonna be you know, Cinema 360 in here and it's gonna be amazing. And this is what I put into my mind. And he walks in and that all I see is just brick houses and street lights and junk across the street, and then 10 uh, floors of stands, the length of a football field. He goes, this is their stadium. And at the end of that day, I turned to Charles Stone and I said, so how depressing do you wanna make this movie? (laughs) It was day one. And what I learned from that experience was your vision and what you put in your head until you get into the director's head, it really means nothing. Because what he taught me was this is a tech school in the middle of the South. This is where this, this is this culture, this subculture. They're not rich. They don't have the LA Coliseum. They don't have the big tunnel. They don't have the monstrous music room, but in their heart and passion, they're incredible musicians. And how can we show that? And all of a sudden, it just like the next day, I was like, I love this. That mural, this is gonna be cool because they're gonna be up there on the drum line and the, the ceiling's gonna be really close to them and claustrophobic and you're gonna feel the weight of, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it started to go into my process and my thought process. And then I completely got into his head of where this film was. And then I just started throwing gasoline on it. And then I could immediately go into where the vision was and then bring that to life in exactly the way he wanted. And that movie became so successful. And like, it's the kind of film where everyone's like, you shot Drumlight, I love that movie, you know? And it's the kind of thing where I didn't even know what I was getting into other than seeing that Senate thing. And then I got on a plane the next day. All I can remember is that tunnel that haunted me to the day. I was like, you know, cause that was my vision in my head. I was like, how can I make this tunnel exciting? Okay. So you think about it and you're like, okay, I have a tunnel that's four feet wide. The ceiling is eight feet high and it has fluorescent lights. So I get with my gaffer, Dan Cornwall, and I'm like, all right, let's punch holes in the side and put can lights down the whole uh, left and right side so it shows dimension. So there's streaks on the wall. We'll turn every other fluorescent off 
on the thing so it has light dark light dark and we got streaks on the wall so at least you know it has a semblance of something cool right and then i'm like what if we take a 21 mil jam the thing up to the ceiling so now all of a sudden we make this fault ceiling a statement before you know if we just put it down here then there's no statement but if i jam that camera right up against the fault ceiling then you're just seeing that ceiling splay out you see all the blue and gold down the thing and then what if all of a sudden this stick spins and goes right across the horizontal of the frame and then this other hand comes in and fucking goes and then the band erupts. I said, that's how you turn this into a tunnel shot. And Charles Stone's like, that is fucking incredible. So everyone in the, the room, all my camera team and everything had earplugs in. I wanted to hear it every single time with full force because it that tunnel that became my nemesis in the beginning became my fuel of passion for the whole film because when he hit those sticks and that band erupted in that tunnel it was like being in a missile launcher where the sound just pushed out right at camera and it literally hits you and hits you in the heart and each time it's like, I make it louder, you know? It's like, I could, I was like so into this. And I remember that after that, I got sick as hell. And then they called me the plague and I went down in flames and I went around with a mask and I drew like a red uh, lipstick on it and nose marks and everything because I didn't want to get people sick. And because Atlanta, for anyone who says that Atlanta is nice, it's not nice ever. You know, you can all have that place. Shoot as many movies as you want there, but it's not California. You fucks. <laughs>
wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> a little cinematography joke here about polarizers. No, I seriously <laughs> thought that's what you're going into. And no, I was like, it's polarizing. Oh, strap in. Oh, it's going to no, be a discussion about polarizing. No, it's 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 Maniac, which uh, it's the new Netflix series from uh, Carrie Fukunaga, who, of course, might be known to many people as the, uh, the directors and creators of... Uh, True Detective. Thank you, True Detective. It was right on the tip of my tongue, which uh, amazing first season. I really, really loved it and uh, definitely made me a fan. And so now I was excited to check out Maniac. And uh, now he's having quite the career. I know he just signed on to direct the next James Bond movie. First Interesting. Non, non-British. Uh, I thought that they wouldn't take British non-British people to yeah, direct. I, that's changed. Carrie has broken the mold. Carrie is so the first I, person. Slight digression. Yeah. Danny Boyle was supposed to direct that movie. He was, but no longer. That bums me out a lot. I want a, yeah, I, I want a Danny Boyle James Bond movie. I really like Danny Boyle too. Anyway. I, I mean, but you know what? I'm not taking anything away from Carrie. I think they both would make great James no, Bond. I'm movies. Not, I'm so. not trying to say somebody can't direct. I just I just want the Danny Boyle. But you know, the, the whole thing about the James Bond brand is them keeping it on brand and not becoming auteur pieces. Anyway, so yes, please I, continue yeah, with true. your discussion of Maniac. Okay, so so Maniac is a is a wonderful show, and um, I know a lot of people who couldn't make it through the first episode. I'm one of them. <laughs> yes, you are. But uh, I believe that if you can actually get into the second episode, uh, for a lot of people, the show, the the show uh, blossoms. It 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 moves down a path, and I'm not even done with it yet. But I'm really excited to see what happens next. And the setup of the story is a little bit out there, a little bit ludicrous. But uh, there's all kinds of wonderful moments. Don't watch it when you're really tired. That was my problem. Yeah, you but watch it when you're tired. I have a newborn. I have I have a five month old baby, so I'm always tired. I'm tired right now. <laughs> Right the second I could go right to sleep and not even finish the sentence. Okay, well, uh, regardless, uh, Maniac, I don't even want to tell people too much about it because I think it's better if you don't know about it, but it's got beautiful cinematography from Darren Liu, who uh, also was a second unit cinematographer from True Detective Mm -hmm. and uh, has has worked on a bunch of other great things. So It's It's got Emma Stone and uh, I just lost his name. Jonah Hill. (laughs) Jonah Hill, yeah, it's Emma Emma Stone Stone and and, and a... A really thin Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill lost a bunch of weight, you know, looking good. Did he lose the weight for this role, or did he just lose the weight and then got cast? I, I, I have no idea. I, I that 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 didn't even cross my mind. But interesting. Uh, yeah. Anyway, right. it's a it's a great show. It's worth checking out. I feel like there's a little element of like Mr. Robot in there. There's an element of like you don't really know what's happening where, but you are still enjoying every moment of that. I will give this another shot. On your recommendation, because and and in not uh, the, not to minimize it, but several people have told me that it's definitely worth checking out. And it's like I was with it for the first fifteen to twenty minutes, and after a while, I was like, "This show needs to let me know what it is." And it didn't do it in the first episode, but I'll 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 give it another shot. I'm gonna give it another shot. All right, give give it a Stop shot. Stop fighting with me. I'll give it another shot. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, so that's it for my short end. <laughs> that, that was it. <laughs> you 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 drove me to stop talking about it. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, I didn't do a short end yet. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I just imagined you'd already gone first. Oh, that's right. You're going to tell me. You're going to surprise me with a yeah, short I don't, end. Right I don't, it's, it's not the biggest bombshell. And for all I know, you already know about it. It is a service called Canopy. Are you familiar with it? No. Canopy with a K. So Def- here's what Canopy. Definitely no. <laughs> here's what Canopy is. If you have a if you have a Roku box or an Apple TV or you know any, a DVR, any of those things, not a DVR, but like if you have a like a TiVo, like I've got a I've got a Roku power television, a right? Fire Stick, Fire Stick. That's what I meant. Um, Canopy is like another Netflix, but it's free 
if you have a library card. So literally, I went to the library. Oh, I've I, heard about I this. I didn't have a library card. I went there. I went to Canopy. I believe it's just Canopy.com. Got myself a library. Got my library card. Signed myself up. And within 10 seconds, I was able to install the app on uh, my Roku TV. And it's like got all kinds of premium shit. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. It's got like tons of Criterion, the Criterion collection. Ooh, how does uh, it look? It looks amazing. I mean, you how know. How does it sound? It sounds great. I mean, And like, it's free? And it's free absolutely free it's through the library like I'm, i've always been yammering about a documentarian frederick wiseman they have all his films on there you know i had heard something about this some time ago but i immediately thought this will never work and clearly it's working it's amazing and a lot of time and you know you kind of go well it's the library so the selection won't be great the selection is freaking amazing and and uh, different genres also there are things like the great courses which is just like a, an online service you can buy they have a bunch of the great courses on there all right do you know if this app that accesses this is available through apple tv do you know if it's available from playstation is it just a fire stick roku type of thing uh i believe it's apple tv i think that i think that apple tv and fire stick and chromecast and roku are all kind of using the same mm. basic protocol so you can generally download the same apps to all of them i only have experience with fire stick and roku those are the two that i've had um i'm pretty sure it's on apple tv and uh i do not i cannot speak to xbox or playstation or video game consoles as i am not one of those people uh, and tivo now has a new box as well that has all those things on cool. there and some, so, some people's tvs have even have them built in so it's so it's i i just i can't recommend it highly enough the the movie the movies are amazing there's a lot of like classic cool ass movies i i uh i uh, went on a tear about saturday night fever on facebook and a lot of people like, making fun of how terrible it was but the reason i saw it is it was on canopy and i'd never seen saturday night fever by the way doesn't hold up at all but <laughs> <laughs> that's not the point it seems like this is a this is a long-winded uh you know uh, dig at Saturday Night Fever is really what this is coming. It was all here. well. I, I think I tweeted something out like Canopy has amazing selection and also Saturday and, Night Fever. <laughs> yes, that that sounds like exactly something you would say. <laughs> but uh, but no, but I mean, uh, uh, it a lot of it, it. It's interesting because it's like what Netflix goes for is like you know it's like a lot of stand up comedians and a lot of like really popular kind of stuff obviously they've got for the time being a lot of like Marvel kind of whatever and it's not that that kind of stuff is not on Canopy but Canopy is going to have more obscure it's not just obscure but like prestigious or stuff with stuff that's like like the burbs you know mm-hmm. the burbs is a movie that was not necessarily super appreciated it's in its great, time it's a great movie and it's brilliant joe dante directed that that's right that's right yeah amazing amazing fun movie with tom hanks they've got that like recently they added angel heart which is one of my favorite weird ass horror movies from the 80s um you know they ha- they have a lot of that kind of stuff but then they have stuff like loving vincent have, have you or yeah have you seen that no never uh i think it's called loving vincent um it's uh it, it only came out maybe a year or so ago and it's an animated feature about the death of Vincent Van Gogh, and they did it all with animated actual oil paintings. They Whoa. painted, and it, and it's like in the style of Van Gogh. Too. So they shot it like they shot it on some kind of like uh, I don't know. They shot it on a regular camera and then rotoscoped frame by frame with oil paintings. Wow! And it I've I've never seen a movie that looks like that. Um, you know, you can find so many amazing things. And again, if you have a library card, totally free. Wow. So, uh, hey, this is actually a giant plug for the library. Go get a library card. Go get a library card, Americans. Sorry if you're <laughs> in Europe or Russia as Boris is because this won't help you. Maybe there's a way to get Canopy in Russia. I don't know. 
so, someone will hack the system. There'll be someone going to the local Studio City library, getting library cards, and then sending them out through the mail so people around the world can, can watch the So can Ukrainians watch can watch Canopy. Can watch uh, Loving Vincent. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, Ben, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm at benrockonline.com because benrock.com was owned, is owned by a uh, boat manufacturer. And even though they don't even use it anymore because Benrock was bought by, uh, by another company like 15 years ago. And I reach out to them probably every year to see if they'll sell me that domain. They will not because maybe they sell one friggin' motor a year. So go to benrockonline.com or you can find me on Twitter at Neptune salad. You know what? I, I bet if you just offered them more money, maybe they'd sell it to you. The conversation's never gotten that far. I've said, would you sell it to me? And they're like, we'll get back to you. And then they don't. Oh, all right. Well, uh, Ben, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to tell all our listeners. If they're still listening, if Boris is still listening, hey, go on Facebook, go on Instagram, follow us, like us, do all that sort of thing, because that actually helps us and spread the word. We, we would love to have more listeners for the show. We're actually doing pretty well for listeners, but we could always use more. This is episode 26. So like literally, if you started listening right now, you would have like three solid days of nothing but listening to our show. No food, no sleep, no bathroom, just our show. Yeah, these shows are kind of long and wordy, which we're trying to work on cutting down, and, and I'm going to help that right now by saying you can find us at camnoir.com. You can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, uh, and you can also follow us on all the, the social platforms at Hot Rod Cameras and as well as the Cinematography Podcast. I'm perfectly happy being long-winded. But anyway, before we go, I just wanted to thank our amazing producer, Alana Cody. Yay! I wanted to thank our kick-ass editor, Ben Katz. We're, we're giving him some work today. And... As always, I'd like to thank Kay's Alatrachi for composing 100% of the music that you heard on this. And uh, I don't even know yet how we're going to get enough music. I don't know that there's enough music in the world to underscore Shane Hurlbut's war story. But, <laughs> but, we, but it happened. But it, it already happened. I just haven't heard it yet. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Thank you very much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.